I'm glad you're here. We're on the heels of Purim. I just want to just remark on the calendar for a moment. The, the way it works and, and how it applies to our lives. You have, we talked about it a little bit before. You have uh, Adar, the, the holiday of Purim comes in the month of Adar, which is the last month of the year. It's the 12th month of the year. And um, if there's a, a leap year and, um, and there are two months of Adar, then Purim comes in the 13th month of the year. So Purim is always coming, uh, according to Jewish law, Purim is always coming in the very, very last month of the year. And there's, um, there's just this interesting duality to this. When we say the last month of the year, wh- what do we mean? We mean the calendar where the first month is the month of Nisan, which Nisan has the word nes in it, which means miracles. It means open miracles. That's when we left Egypt with all the signs and wonders. It's the month of open miracles, clarity, salvation. So when we say that Purim is the last month of the year, the 12th month of the year, the 13th month of the year, that means it's the furthest from open clarity. In other words, it's the darkest, most concealed time. And we know that in the Megillah, Hashem's name is, is never mentioned openly. What you do have is many, many references to Hamelech. And in fact, there's, um, there's a way of writing the Megillah. It's called a, uh, a Hamelech Megillah, where every single column begins with the word, except for the first, every single column, actually the very last one where you have the names. Anyway, 98% of the columns <laughs> start with the word Hamelech. There's a way of writing it. I actually have one of these. And you'll see, like, they're, they're pretty common among the Megillahs. If you, if you just open one up, you'll just note that the first word of almost every single column is Hamelech. Um, it doesn't have to be written like that, but, but many, many are. And where you see the word Hamelech, which means the king in Hebrew, it's, it's really a, a very sort of secret allusion, a secret reference to Hashem. So on one level, Hashem's name is mentioned all over the Megillah, and yet not, not openly, not openly, it's concealed. So again, just to situate the month of Purim in our minds, it's the furthest, furthest month, and it has to, this is according to Jewish law, like we said, if there's a leap year, it has to be in the second month of Adar. It would have to be in the 13th month of the year. So it's the furthest month away from the open clarity of Nisan. A time of concealment. And yet, what's the, what's the divine twist? You're days away from Nisan. <laughs> it's simultaneously the closest to the open revelation of God's miracles. So you're the furthest away, and simultaneously, you're the closest. It's both at the same time. And this hints at the centrality of Purim to our lives and to the human condition. Um, we were fortunate to hear in the name of uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach a connection between the fact that Parshas Tetzave, which we just read, most years comes before Purim. And it's the 
It's the one Parsha since the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Parsha Shmos, till the end of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is mentioned in every single Parsha except this one. So you know that whatever happens on Shabbos, all the blessings of the week that's coming come down on Shabbos. So it's very interesting so, so in the Shabbos, you can see the essence of the week that's about to arrive. So it's very telling that on the Shabbos, where Moshe's name is concealed, we're going to read the Megillah, where Hashem's name is concealed. In fact, to go a little bit further with this bit of imagery, the a lot about what we're reading about on on. Uh, in Parshas Tetzaveh is the, what we say, we call the Big Day Kuhuna, which are the, um, the clothing, <coughs> the clothing of the, um, the holy Kahanim, the priests of the Beis Migdash, and the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And everyone knows, um, mystically speaking, that when you're talking about garments, you're talking about that which covers over the truth, that which covers over the light. So here we're talking about Purim, which is concealment, and the entire Parsha is all about garments. <clears throat> and to go even further with this, what, what is the beginning of the, of, Parsha, of, the, of the Parsha? It's talking about the Ner Tamid. It's talking about the light that never goes out. So we're talking about garments covering the light that never goes out, which is the story of Purim itself. The Hester Panim, the, the hiding of Hashem's face, seemingly. But behind it is Hashem Himself, the light that never goes out. But let's go further. Because in, in the Parsha is also this amazing mitzvah to bring two, two korbonos every single day. And, um, and the Balaturim, See something very, very amazing in this? Let me just find it for you. Uh, we're supposed to, it was, the, it was called the, um, the Korban Tamid, and we brought it in the day and in the afternoon. And in the first three letters, let me... Read it for you. It's uh, chapter 29, uh, verse 38. It says, um, This is what you should offer upon the altar, sheep within the first year, two a day continually. So in Hebrew, two a day continually is shanim liom tamid. And the Balaturim points out that if you take the first three letters, shin, lamid, and taf, that is gematria 730. And that's the exact number of sheep that were brought to a day for the whole year. Let's work that out. On a 365-day year, you brought two every single day. 365 times two is 730, which is the gamatri of the first three letters of bring two, bring two sheep a day every day. <laughs> it's... It's amazing what is encoded. I don't even want to say encoded. That's almost 
It's almost the wrong word. It's the right word, but it's the wrong word. What's contained? It's just levels. What's contained in the instructions themselves? All the details of the instructions are contained within the instructions. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. It's why we're always saying again and again and again and again, don't ever think, don't ever dare to allow yourself to have the thought that the Torah is a book. I mean, it exists in book form. But it's the infinite compressed into the finite. It's realms and universes. It happens to be that we live in a very strange realm where it appears in book form. But don't, don't be fooled by that. Don't be fooled by that. It's, it's vast. It's vaster than the universe itself, literally. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Every single day. Including Yom Kippur. Every single day. Even days where um, there were extra korbanos. Every single day. And, and there's an opinion, believe it or not, if I were to ask you what's the most important Pasuk in the entire Torah, the rabbis had this discussion themselves. And there were a few candidates. But they boiled it down to like, like Shema Yisrael, like that was one of the finalists. Believe it or not, this one. That you should bring, <clears throat> and this is what you should offer upon the altar, sheep within their first year, two a day continually. That's the winning Pasuk in the Torah. Because it, 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 it emphasizes the ongoing constant nature of one's attachment to God. That's what it's talking about on the, on the, on the, on the deeper level. How is it possible that that trumps on any level Shema, because it, in a way it assumes Shema, because Shema is the recognition and the declaration of God's oneness. This is okay, but God is one for sure, therefore, what are you going to do about it? This, 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 yeah, exactly, this is okay, given the fact that there's one God, this is what you do about it. You constantly attach yourself to Him. So it's, it, it, it almost presumes the Shema and then it, gives, it takes it the, ne- the next step. So, but today there's no temple anymore. What happens today? Okay, so today we have tefillah. Today we have prayer. Today we have prayer. And, um, you know, there's no, there's no contradiction um, to the fact that we don't have uh, the Beis HaMikdash today in terms of attaching ourselves to God. In fact, I wanted to say one of the things about the, um, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, there's so many mitzvahs. I don't have a count, but I think it's probably in the hundreds. And we're only talking about 613 mitzvahs to begin with. Probably in the hundreds that we can't do today because we don't have a Beis HaMikdash. So, you know, it hit me one tish above where we mourn the destruction of the base of Migdash. Hashem, you gave us so many mitzvahs. Please, God, let us be able to do the mitzvahs that, that you gave us to do. But in order to do that, we need a base of Migdash. So please, God, bring back the base of Migdash. So I heard an answer back. Um, I don't mean literally. I mean, but some, a thought came back into my head, which was an answer to that, which was, 
God saying, so to speak, you know something? I'll let you do those mitzvahs, but first you've got to get the basics down. First you've got to figure out how to treat each other. Once you figure out how to treat each other, then you can do those mitzvahs. You know, you've got to get the foundation. You've got to get the foundation first. Then, then, then we move on to the others. And so, but this idea, Reb Shlomo develops this idea of this, of this constant avoda. So what's, what do we experience as the constant hand of Hashem? And that's nature. So nature is, is a very interesting thing because I've heard some very nice um, definitions of nature. One is, nature is basically, these are ongoing miracles, but they're miracles that we've become used to. Ironically, an open miracle is actually seen in this view, an open miracle is actually less significant than every single day nature. And I'll, I'll explain how. Because when the sea splits, that's a singular event for, for them. Okay? Now, the reason why people make such a big deal about open miracles is because it reminds you that the concealed miracles are coming from God. So in other words, it sort of like lights up the source of everything. So it allows you to understand how God is everywhere and God is guiding everything. So in that, in that respect, open miracles are extraordinarily prized. But let's look at it from a slightly different angle right now. The sea opens and it splits. A great miracle. No question about it. But who made time and who made space and who made the water and who keeps the water in existence that it could be split? In other words, why is it a miracle that it didn't split? Because water existed in a realm that existed for hundreds or thousands or millions of years before it was split. But the existence of that water and time and space and the world that the water existed before it was split was an ongoing miracle the entire time. So the miracle of the splitting is for one moment, but the existence of the context for the miracle to take place in is an ongoing miracle that existed from the beginning of time and continues right after the sea is split until the present. So you're, you're engulfed. That one, it's, it's one miracle, one open miracle, situated amidst trillions of miracles. But we grow used to it. We grow used to it. So we don't see the miraculous nature of it. So this idea, this idea that God reveals himself in this way, this is the miracle of Purim. Now the B'nai Asaskar tries to explain the miracle of Purim. Because unlike Pesach, there's no sea splitting. There's no... There's no, like, there's no hail coming down from the sky that was simultaneously ice and on fire at the same time. I think everyone knows that, right? That there was a double miracle by the hail. 
It was ice, and it was on fire at the same time, but it didn't melt the ice. And the ice didn't put out the fire. Not only that, but I just learned this recently, actually, something phenomenal, I love this, is that when Moshe Rabbeinu stopped the hail, there was some hail about to fall in the sky, and it remained suspended in the sky until the time of Yehoshua, when Yehoshua, Joshua, was fighting a battle. There's a reference in Tanakh how the enemy was pelted with rocks. And it says that those, that, that last bit of fiery hail was suspended in the sky when Moshe stopped the plague from going, and it stayed there until that battle, and then it rained down on the enemy the remainder, that last little load, like finished downloading on the enemy there. So, I mean, what do we know? What do we know? What's hanging in the sky now? When, if there's this final battle that we're going to find out, oh yeah, oh you didn't see it? You didn't see all those swords in the sky? <laughs> they were only there for 3,000 years. Really? You never noticed them? You know, so who knows what's, who knows what's hanging in the sky right now? But, um, but anyway. So, so the miracle of Purim, very curious, very curious, because first of all, everyone should know that the, the time between the feast where the decree comes down and the time where, um, where Ahasuerus feast, where, where the Jews go and go to that feast when they shouldn't have, and, um, and the decree from heaven comes down that the Jews should be eradicated, God forbid. The time between that and the whole story of Purim as we understand it with Esther going before the king and Haman being hung is like a period of about eight years. It's a really long time between when the decree happened and then when the actual events play themselves out. Um, and there's no, no revealed miracle. The king can't get to sleep. Can't get to sleep one night. Listen to how this plays out. It's just worth going over. The wisdom of Esther. The greatness of Esther. She, she goes up to the king. Remember, this is taking place on Pesach. See, remember, we, we started off by saying that Purim takes place in the last month of the year. The month that's furthest from Nisan, the open revelation of Hashem. In other words, the darkest point of the year, it's taking place. And yet simultaneously, it's days away from Nisan. So it's simultaneously the furthest point, and it's the closest point. So, so Esther... Esther goes up to the king and she risks her life. I mean, and when does she go to the king? She goes to the king on Pesach. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's Pesach or Erev Pesach, but the, 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 the feasts where she has the private party with her and Ahasuerus where she invites them to this, this party that she's having, 
Um, and I'm going to go on that in, in a second, just because the details of that, it's just, are so amazing. Um, but that's playing out during, during Pesach. So, so in other words, Purim takes place on Pesach. <laughs> so it's not just, it's not just that we celebrate Purim, which is the furthest point away from the open revelation of God, and yet it's the closest point. It's simultaneous. Because that's our lives. We walk through life and we say, where's God? He's right there. He feels the farthest away, while simultaneously He's the closest. Purim takes place on Pesach. The salvation of... Look at it. The story of the Megillah takes place on the holiday of Pesach. It's phenomenal. You've got two holidays at once. One celebrating the fact that that God is completely concealed. The other celebrating the fact that God is completely revealed. And they both take place at the exact same time. It's all in our heads. The phone is constantly ringing. God is constantly calling you. You can pick up the phone or you cannot pick up the phone. You can stay mired in your sense of isolation and existential angst and solipsism and just nihilism. You can stay mired in that. But what's the joke? The joke is is that you're mourning the distance from your loved one while he's sitting in front of you. You know, let me put it another way. Have you ever heard the expression, I painted myself into a corner? So, the, the, where that comes from is, imagine you're painting the floor of a room, okay? And let's say the door is like on the north side of the room. So you start painting in front of the door by the north side, and you're painting, and you're going south. And you're painting, 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 painting. And now you're in the southmost corner of the room, and you realize, how am I going to get out of the room? I painted myself into a corner. That's where that expression comes from, right? But now, what if the paint is dry and you're just standing there in the corner? (laughs) You might be in the corner. You might not be imagining that. But the paint might be dry. There's nothing stopping you from walking forward. You might feel isolated because your life at that point stinks. It might legit, it might mathematically stink. <laughs> you can go to an accountant. Is my life lousy? You know something? I've looked over the various areas of your life. Yes, your life is certified lousy. <laughs> it might even be. And God is right there at that moment and you can reach out to God because the phone is ringing because the paint is dry. You see, we, we make what I, what I love to call bad math. We do bad math all the time. I'm in a sense of emotional discomfort. My life is, is legitimately, I'm not making jokes right now, I'm being very serious. My life can be in a, in, in a very horrible place. Therefore, God is distant from me and He's not listening to me. A completely erroneous conclusion. 
A person may be in emotional discomfort. A person's circumstances may actually be terrible. And yet God is 100% there and listening. So then a person says, well, if God is there and he's listening, how could this be my situation? Right? Well, because God wants something from us at that moment. There's some fixing going on. There's some rectification going on. There's some test going on where he's trying to call upon some hidden resource that we have within us that we haven't made manifest into the world yet, that we have to make manifest. And the way to do that is through challenge. So I want to tell you something about challenge. Last week, we read, it was Zion Adar, which is also interesting. We talk about the simultaneity of how Purim represents the concealment of God and Pesach represents the open revelation of God and both events happened exactly on the same days of the calendar. So, so another parallel with this is Zion Adar, which is the seventh of the month of Adar, which is just a few days before Purim, where you see the same simultaneity. It's the yurt site of Moshe, the, the day Moshe left the world, and also the birthday of Moshe, when he entered the world. Total simultaneity. The same, the same expression, which is interesting. So now I want to read you from the Medrash says about how Hashem took Moshe out of this world. Okay? And I just want to... The truth is, is that I just want to... I'm going to summarize it a little bit. It's on, if you have it, it's uh, the book of Devarim. It's on page 406. Hashem begins by telling the several angels to go down and to take Moshe. He has to tell several angels because each one says, not me, I'm not going to do it. And each has their reason. Finally, he says to the Malach Amavis, the angel of death, you go and take him. Okay? So, so now listen to this. Uh, the angel of death grew afraid of Moshe. No angel can take Moshe's soul, he thought. He began to tremble and was unable to utter even one word to Moshe. Moshe, though, knew of his presence even before the angel revealed himself. So now the angel of death has shown up and there's Moshe. Moshe's 120 at the time. Okay? Got to put yourself in Moshe's shoes right now. That's the point of this, why I'm saying this. What's Moshe thinking? How is Moshe going to react to these circumstances? There's the angel of death. So Moshe says, you evil one, what are you doing here? Moshe asked him sternly. The angel of death then summoned his courage and answered, I came to take your soul. Okay, so now Moshe says back, who sent you? He says, he who created all. All right, so now, what is Moshe's response? The angel, the angel of death has come to take Moshe Rabbeinu. He's 120. He spoke to him sternly already. Who sent you? He's like checking out like his papers, the mission. He says, God himself sent me. So what's Moshe's response? If you asked me, I would say Moshe says, okay, it's time to go. Right? 
Here's what Moshe replies. He certainly did not want you to take my soul. (laughs) But rather, he wishes me to defeat you, Moshe says. Now, the, the account goes on, and it's worth reading on your own, because there are a lot of twists and wonderful things in here. But, but what, what I want to focus in on is Moshe's reaction to the ultimate challenge. By the way, just, just so you know, the, the Sutton goes away and says to Hashem, I tried, and Hashem gives the Sutton more power, and he comes back down the second time, and Moshe hits him with a stick. <laughs> He takes his rod with Hashem's name on it and he hits him with a stick. So, you talk about who saw the world more clearly than Moshe? No one. By the way, part of our faith, part of, part of, part of the Jewish faith, it's been codified. And this is in black and white. This is, this is part of our faith. Is that there will be no prophet ever greater than Moshe And the inference there, it doesn't say it, but the inference is, even Mashiach, even Mashiach won't be greater in prophecy. He'll be, as Reb Shlomo explained, greater in other things, but not in prophecy. So in other words, no one ever, 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 ever saw God and therefore saw the world more clearly than Moshe Rabbeinu. So, Moshe sees death. I'm talking about us right now. Just, I, I hope you all know that. I'm talking about us and how we react when we're confronted with challenge. That's, that's the point of this. Moshe sees death. And remember, no one saw the world more clearly than Moshe. Moshe sees death. Death tells him, God sent me for you. And Moshe says, he most certainly did not. <laughs> I mean, you gotta love that. You gotta love Moshe for that. And what about us? We said, I miss my bus. Ah, that's it. I'm going, I'm gonna hide under my bed. <laughs> Tell Russia Shona, maybe. You know, maybe you can find me then. You know, if you look under all the laundry. You know, I mean, it's, it means, it means that God really, 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 really is good. And that anything that comes our way has to be seen through those, eye, through those eyes. You know, I want to say something that struck me as very, very deep. And, um, and my, my greatest hope is that it's not going to sound like a platitude that I'm going to be able to communicate what I'm trying to say from this. Because I think that it's one of these things that can, can be a very useful tool in terms of getting through life. And that's, um, well, I'll just say it very simply. The necessity of seeing life through the eyes of what we have and not through the eyes of what we don't have. The reason is because I think that our natural inclination is that if there are things that we need and things that we want, 
starting from the time that we wake up in the morning, we're seeing the world through the eyes of what I don't have and what I would like. In other words, we're starting each day behind the eight ball, so to speak. It's like I'm waking up in the red, so to speak. How am I going to get that thing? Or I'm missing that thing. I'm missing that thing. I don't have that thing. I'm seeing life through the eyes of that thing or those things that I don't have. But can you imagine, what is it to see life through the eyes every single day from the time that I wake up through the eyes of what I do have? Then, of course, there are things that I'm missing that I still want, but I'm dealing with my life from a position of strength from the time I wake up in the morning. This is, and that's reality, you know? It's like, right now, I need a job. And, you know, I go to shul, and I was thinking, you know, ah, I'm walking to shul, I need a job. And I thought to myself, you know what? If I had a job, what would I be doing right now? I'd be going to shul right now. <laughs> Same thing. Then after... I go to shul, I go, I get a cup of coffee, I have a cup of coffee and a bagel, I usually eat it in my car on the way to go to learn. Thinking, oh man, I need a job. And I'm thinking, you know what, if I had a job, what would I be doing right now? Well, I'd be having a cup of coffee and a bagel in my car on the way to learn. <laughs> then I'm going to learn, I'm thinking, ah, I'm walking into the building, I need a job. Thinking, you know what, if I had a job, how would I be starting the morning? right here in the base medrash, learning. So much of our life, and you can substitute whatever your need is, so much of our life is going to be pretty much minute to minute, largely, I'm not saying entirely, of course, but largely the things that we're doing right now anyway, even without that thing. And we have, we have all of those things now. If we see life through what we have, we'll realize how much we actually have. And you realize how insidious, how toxic, how evil the Yetzirah really is. That we can have so much and be missing so little, and that God can, or that we can, or the Yetzirah, however you want to say it, that we can allow ourselves to just see it through the lens of what's missing. Bless you. You know, it's part of a much, much longer story, but, um, but Reb Shlomo once told the story of, of someone who, he was like a, um, you know, like a, a poor kind of like farmer type from like a village, and he won a big lottery. And, um, and it was, it, in order to claim a prize this big, he had to go into the big city, like into St. Petersburg or something like this. And so he goes to St. Petersburg and he, he's able to get the, um, the money and it's like a, a huge sum of money. It's like, you know, like 10,000 rubles, something like this. And, um, and it can't even all fit into one sack. Most of it can. So he's got like 98,000 rubles in one sack and two, Thousand rubles, say, in another sack. Something like this. I'm making up these numbers. And uh, he can't get all the way back home. He can't get all the way back home 
Um, and uh, without spending the night, and you know, back then, you know, you didn't want to travel with money like that, so you might get robbed. So he goes to the rabbi's house and he gives the rabbi the money for safekeeping, which was a, a normal thing back in those days. The rabbi was almost like a bank in that way. And, um, and the next day, or maybe it was after Shabbos, I, I don't remember exactly, he goes to the rabbi and he says to the rabbi, um, you know, I, I need my money back now. So the rabbi hands him the sack with like the 98,000 rubles, right? And the man looks at him very, very suspiciously. And he says, where are the other 2,000 rubles? <laughs> and the rabbi is like, you know, he was going to give him the other 2,000 rubles. He had no intention for a second of withholding it, but first he had to give him the 98,000 rubles before he gave him the 2,000 rubles. But he said, basically, I gave you the 98,000 rubles. Do you think I'm not going to give you the other 2,000 rubles? So the way Rabbi Shlomo said it, you know, every single time we wake up, God is giving us the 98,000 rubles. Every time we wake up, So, so let's just get to this, uh, what Esther did with, with Ahasuerus. Mordechai says to Esther, you have to go and, and you, have to, you have to appeal before Ahasuerus. Now, there was a law at that point, which is that anyone who goes to the king who hasn't been called to see the king gets the death penalty, unless the king extends his golden scepter. And then, if that's the case, then you're granted sort of a reprieve and, um, and you're, you have permission to stay before the king. So Mordechai says to Esther, you have to, this decree has just been revealed to me. I've just found out that, that the Jews are going to be exterminated, God forbid. You have to go before the king right now. And she says, I'm going to be called before the king very soon. Let me go then. And another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the day of extermination, it sounds like it was very imminent. There's a tremendous spiritual lesson here. <clears throat> the decree, remember, this is all happening in Nisan. This is approximately April, right? So... The decree where the Jews were supposed to be killed was not going to be for another 11 months. It was not going to be until Adar. That was the day when all the Jews were going to get wiped out. In other words, this sentence was not going to be put into effect against the Jews for another 11 months. When we celebrate, when we celebrate um, Purim, what we're celebrating is the day 11 months after the story of the Megillah. After the story of the Megillah, 11 months later, the Jews, instead of being exterminated, went out and killed out their enemies. Like approximately 75,000 enemies. The Jews killed. That's what it says in the Megillah. On 
tomorrow. It's uh, on the 13th of Adar. And then we celebrate on the 14th of Adar. So why is this so significant? Because the day of our death was 11 months from now. Think of our own lifetimes. We all know intellectually that we're mortal. But it's 11, well, hopefully it's longer than 11 months. <laughs> Should all live to 120 in strength and health and good mazel and brochas and simchas. But nonetheless, it seems very far away. And once something seems very far away, it becomes an abstraction. And once something becomes an abstraction, the eight Sahara gets in. And it's sort of like, I'll do it later. Remember, it's so, it's interesting because the essence of Purim, the essence of Purim is so connected to the essence of Pesach. Because what's Pesach all about? If you let the dough sit for too long, it rises and becomes chametz. You know, it's that hay, matzah and chametz. It's the same letters if you fill in, if you take the hay and you turn it into a ches. In other words, what's the difference between something being matzah, which is flat, which is holy, bless you, which is like the ultimate soul food. Matzah, the ultimate soul food. What's the difference between its flatness and its pureness and something which symbolizes the eight Sahara? Chametz? Just waiting a little bit of time, that hay, that line of the hay rising just a little bit and connecting to the top and becoming a ches. Esther says to Mordechai, the king is going to call me in a few days from now. What do I have to risk my life? I could get the death sentence. I'm our best hope. I'm the inside person. I'm the inside connection inside the palace. I'm our best hope. Look how the Yetzirah is already turning the wheels. Why should I wait? I mean, why shouldn't I wait? And Mordechai is coming back. It's like it's going to become chametz. The Jews are never going to do tshuva. Esther hears it. Her greatness is she totally hears it. And she says, okay, I'm going to fast for three days. All of Israel has to fast for three days and then I'm going to go in and see the king and I'll risk my life. So she does. So the B'nai Yisachar explains the miracle of Purim, how, what the nature of it was because we don't see any splitting of the sea. We just see God behind the scenes orchestrating events so he compares it to a person who's very sick in his bed, like about to die. And there he is like in Poland. And the doctors, and this is before air travel, the doctors look at him and say, listen, you're not going to make it. You can't, you can't, you can't live. And they're like, is, doctor, is there, is there any, any way, any possible way that the patient can be saved, that I can be saved? And the doctor says, you know, yeah, but there is this particular medication. There's this particular herb. And B'nai Yisachar says this. This is his words. He says, but it's in China. It's in China. And how are we going to get it? 
How are we going to get it? To send a boat from like Poland to China and to get the herb and then to bring it back. You, you've got, you've got like, you've got a tiny window of time right now. You know? At that moment, someone runs through the door of the house and says, a ship just came in from China. And, and, and we can get the herb. And they, they go and they, they administer the herb and the patient lives. Now, now that ship was heading in the whole time, right? But they didn't know it. Think about how God was working behind the scenes. It's, it's a miracle, but it's not a splitting of the sea miracle. Everything, well, you can say, yeah, but, you know, that ship from China, yeah, that was booked because, you know, that herb, we needed that herb for that uh, medical school over there, so that was ordered months ago. And then you can just start to explain the whole thing away. Yeah, it happens to be that, okay, he was dying, I understand, and I understand that someone just ran in with the news right as the diagnosis. I understand all that, but it's not really exactly a miracle, right? Wait a second. A moment ago, you were in Poland, and your cure was in China, and you've got a few minutes to live. The next thing you know, you've got the herb from China. That's a miracle. Yeah, but it's not exactly a miracle. Right? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Um, so, so let's just finish with these last words, just tying it back to the Parsha. That, that we've got the mitzvah on Shabbos we read about, the Korban Tamid, this, this daily, this daily cleaving to Hashem, this daily cleaving to Hashem, and how Hashem shows His hand to us, but He shows His hand to us every single day in this miraculous fashion, but it's the herb from China category. <laughs> every single thing, it's that herb from China. You walk to your car, and your car is still in its face. I don't know if any of you have ever had your car stolen. I had my car stolen one time. We, we, we recovered it many years ago. I went to my car... And there was just some little pieces of broken glass where my car was parked <laughs> in an open space. That's all that was left of my car. I got it back. But, you know, after this talk, you're going to walk to your car. Your car's still there. That's the, that's the herb from China right there. You, you climb into the car. Your, your, your door opens and it doesn't fall off its hinges. <laughs> You don't have to lift like a 300-pound door off the concrete and try to get it into your trunk. And how are you going to drive with like no door? I mean, that's crazy, right? That's the herb from China. Right? You've got legs still to hit the gas pedal or the brakes. Those are two wonderful herbs from China. <laughs> so, so, so we're we're swimming in miracles. We're swimming in miracles. We're swimming in miracles. And remember, 
remember, there's, there's no and there's not yet. <laughs> Don't confuse the two. Knows and not yet. You know? I read, I read, I read in this book this past week called Cheshben and Nefesh, means accounting for your soul. It said, all of life can be boiled down to two things, faith and patience. Faith and patience. And it was such a revelation to me because I thought faith meant patience. It's a separate category. Faith and patience. Right? And to understand that Hashem is constantly saving us. And that Purim and Pesach are taking place simultaneously in our lives every single moment. Adar, the furthest away from Nisan and the closest to Nisan. The phone is always ringing. If you paint yourself into the corner, remember, the paint is dry. The paint is dry. Just keep on walking. Have a great forum.